Good evening. Good evening, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Senior Digital Outreach Manager, and you're at Cato Digital, a regular event series highlighting the intersection between the tech, digital media, and the ideas of liberty. Tonight we'll be discussing how the, legal, how the burgeoning legal cannabis industry is harnessing the powers of tech and the legal impediments that stand in their way. Although cannabis is still classified as a Schedule I drug, meaning that it's illegal to use, possess, purchase, or cultivate under federal law, there's now 23 states plus the District of Columbia allowing its use for medical reasons, and four states, again, plus the District of Columbia, allowing its recreational use. Despite a fair amount of confusion and uh, confusing legal patchwork across the country, and even sometimes um, within certain municipalities, businesses are pouring into this industry, and tech is not far behind. We're seeing everything from new methods of ingestion to uh, testing labs and personal portable testing equipment, um, online rating websites similar to Yelp or Angie's List, and even business software solutions. Our panel of experts today uh, will be discussing their unique spin on this tech, tech phenomenon we're witnessing here. First, we're gonna have uh, Taylor West, who will be giving us an overview of uh, how the industry is using tech and outlining some of the legal issues that they're commonly running into. Then Betty Eldworth will be talking a little bit more about some of the interesting trends she's been seeing and um, what she'd like to see from a public health perspective in terms of tech and cannabis. And then finally, uh, Amy Poinsett from uh, MJ Freeway will be giving us a case study of her seed-to-sale uh, seed tracking software and how businesses are using that. Um, I would like to let you know about the hashtag here for tonight. That's Cato Digital, the same as for every other Cato Digital panel. Um, for those of you watching the live stream, we will be taking questions from Twitter. And for the rest of you, I hope you'll join the conversation online. With no further ado, I'd like to introduce Taylor West. Taylor is the Deputy Director of the National Cannabis Industry Association. She spent over a decade in communications and leadership positions in political policy, nonprofit, and business worlds. She moved to Denver after four years in DC, where she worked as a strategist for a variety of different policy and regulatory reform efforts, and as communications director for the National Journal. She's a veteran of several high profile political campaigns and has appeared as a commentator on MSNBC, Fox News, and CNBC. Taylor first got involved in drug policy reform over 15 years ago when she was an intern at DRCNet, which is now known as StopTheDrugWar.org. You can find her on Twitter as at Taylor underscore West. Taylor? Thank you, Kat. Make sure this is picking me up. Um, as Kat said, I am the Deputy Director at the National Cannabis Industry Association. We are the national trade association that represents businesses in the legal cannabis industry. We have about 900 member businesses nationwide, uh, and that includes members in, I believe, every state that has at least some form of legal cannabis, either medical or adult use. Uh, our primary goals are uh, working for federal policy change in Washington, D.C. Um, on policies that affect businesses within the industry. Um, so in talking to Kat, you know, I told her um, we can talk, I can talk a bit about sort of the, the technology question, um, but I wanted to start out first by kind of giving everyone a little bit of an overview about how the conflict between federal and state laws plays out and what that means in terms of challenges for businesses in the industry. Um, there are two main ways uh, that this really affects businesses. Uh, the first is one you may have heard about, which is that uh, because banking and financial institutions are regulated at the federal level, most financial institutions feel that they are potentially putting their, uh, their institutions at risk if they serve businesses that are working in the industry. Uh, because cannabis is still a Schedule One illegal substance, uh, there's concern that they could be wrapped up in some sort of money laundering prosecution or something along those lines. Um, it's worth noting that that's never actually happened. Uh, no bank, as far as anyone can tell, has ever actually been uh, prosecuted or otherwise interfered with for a relationship with a legal cannabis business. But uh, the folks running these banks, you know, uh, have to take the the most risk averse position. Um, what this means is that most of our members are having to operate their businesses entirely in cash. 
Um, and that's not just at the counter with their customers. Um, we're talking about their entire back end as well. They're paying their employees in cash. They're paying their utility bills in cash. They're paying their taxes in cash. Uh, it's incredibly unsafe. Uh, it's also very difficult to uh, track and maintain the kind of uh, transparent accounting that they're often required to by law. Um, so it creates a lot of significant issues. Um, it also creates some technology opportunities, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but it's important to know that that is a major issue facing not only businesses that directly handle the plant, but also businesses uh, that are just involved in the industry in some way. If you have any reference to marijuana or cannabis in the name of your business, there's a good chance that your business has lost a bank account at some point or another um, and maybe is operating without one now. The second area where the federal and state conflict really comes into play is uh, in federal taxation. There is a provision in the federal tax code that was put in in the early 1980s. Um, it's referred to as Section 280E. Uh, it was originally put into the tax code to address the problem of uh, an illegal cocaine trafficker uh, writing off some of the uh, equipment and um, expenses that he had for his business on his federal taxes. Uh, and it turns out that that was not actually illegal prior to 280E. His business was, but writing off his expenses was not. Uh, so Congress added in a provision that says that any business that operates in uh, trafficking a Schedule One or Schedule Two controlled substance cannot write off their normal business uh, expenses as deductions. Uh, what this means is that for legal cannabis businesses uh, that are in fact trafficking in a Schedule One controlled substance, they are not allowed to subtract the expenses that they incur in running their business from the amount that they pay taxes on. Every other legitimate business in the U.S. is allowed to do that. Uh, this translates into businesses often paying upwards of 75, 80, 85 percent of their actual profit straight into federal taxes. Um, this is a tremendous burden on businesses. And when you think about where the cannabis industry stands right now, most of these businesses are operating in startup mode. They're small, and every bit of their profits needs to be plowed back into their business to continue growing. Uh, when that amount of money is being sucked away to the federal government, it means fewer jobs created, uh, less state tax revenue, uh, inability to increase salaries or improve their property or add new equipment. Um, these are all major issues that would cripple any business, uh, but especially a business that's, that's growing as quickly as the cannabis industry is. This is a major, major concern. Um, this is something that, uh, unfortunately, both of these issues, both banking and taxation, have to be dealt with at the congressional level um, to have a sustainable solution. And there are provisions in Congress right now, bills in Congress that would address these issues. Uh, in fact, Americans for Tax Reform, Grover Norquist's organization, has been uh, very helpful on the 280E issue. They see it as an issue of overtaxation uh, and that this is tax fairness, um, where these businesses aren't asking to be treated in any special way. They're simply asking to be able to pay taxes the same way any other business does. Uh, so these are two major issues. Cat uh, felt like, especially when you're talking about the conflict between federal and state law, this is something that would be really interesting um, to folks at the Cato Institute. So I wanted to run through those quickly. Uh, we have actually a large group of cannabis business owners coming into Washington, D.C. this week. Uh, we are doing a lobby day, sort of a fly-in for the industry um, on Wednesday and Thursday. It will be our fifth annual, and it's an opportunity for our business owners to come and speak to congressional offices and talk about these issues that they're dealing with. To get a little more specific about this actual topic, talking about technology, um, one of the fascinating things about the, the spread of a legal regulated cannabis market is that when you move a market from the underground, from the criminal world, and put it into the light, put it into the, the mainstream and, and behind a regulated counter, uh, you open up a lot of opportunity for innovation. Um, once you're no longer spending a tremendous amount of your energy simply trying to hide your activities, 
there's a lot more opportunity uh, to look at ways to do things better, new ways to do things. Companies that would not have necessarily gotten into the industry uh, prior to legalization are bringing expertise to the table. Uh, Amy's going to talk about software and the, the work that they've done to create an incredibly sophisticated tracking software specifically for the industry. And we're seeing that in all parts of the industry. And it's to everyone's benefit. Uh, you are seeing a lot of emphasis on um, testing, there, which is something that you did not see at all in a criminal market. The idea that you can take a product and start to really understand what the, the compounds are, each strain having a different set of compounds, some of which are maybe more effective on certain medical conditions than others, uh, things that, that we can amplify or uh, lower in terms of effect. Uh, so that type of testing is something that simply did not happen in the criminal market and is becoming more and more sophisticated within the legal regulated market. We're seeing the same thing when you talk about um, uh, the financial products. Right now, because businesses can't get regular bank accounts in many cases, uh, you are seeing people coming to the fore with other solutions. Uh, cashless ATMs are a, a popular solution in the industry right now. Essentially, it means that when you go to pay for your product, uh, you put your debit card into what is, in all, for all intents and purposes, a, an ATM, but rather than it dispensing the cash, the cash is deposited into the, the dispensary's uh, safe um, or into their accounts. And so it allows them to let their customers pay with a card and have an electronic transaction uh, without having to go through the process of a bank account. Um, so you're seeing, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? You're seeing those kinds of uh, innovations happening because the industry is having to figure out how to work around things. One of the hurdles that really continues to stand in the way for regular banking is that the Federal Reserve is the, uh, the conduit, essentially, for checking accounts in the U.S. And ultimately... If you as a bank customer can't access uh, checking, then your bank account doesn't do you a lot of good. If you can't write a check against the money that you've deposited, there's not a lot of point in having it there. Um, that is, that uh, need to access the Federal Reserve's master accounts is uh, one of the big hurdles in terms of getting any financial institution that can serve the industry. Um, and that's, uh, we can talk about that in more detail, but that is, um, the last piece that's standing in the way of one effort in Colorado that was developed um, it's called Fourth, Quarter, Fourth Corner Credit Union. It is a state-chartered credit union, so the state of Colorado was involved in this, the governor's office and the legislature, um, attempting to essentially do everything that they could at the state level to make this institution functional for the industry. The last piece that they need is approval for a master account through the Federal Reserve. Normally, a state chartered credit union gets that approval pretty much by default. If you are chartered by a state, you are essentially eligible for a Federal Reserve master account. The hope was that would be the case for this credit union as well and that they would focus on the cannabis industry. They have submitted their application. They did so in November. Uh, they still have not heard back from the Fed, uh, so we're still waiting for a decision there. Um, even if that uh, comes to pass, it's a single solution, not a sustainable industry-wide one. Uh, so that's another area where as much as we would like for technology to be able to uh, step in and provide a solution, uh, we're still a little bit hamstrung waiting on Congress. Um, so that's just a, a little bit of an overview of some of the hurdles that we're dealing with, as well as a little bit of the, the opportunities that uh, are potentially there in a legal industry. Um, and I can get more into that, that, the tech piece of that message when we get to the Q&A period. But I think I've taken enough of my intro time, so I'll uh, hand it over. Thank you, Taylor. Um, up next, we have Betty Eldworth. Betty is the Executive Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. In 2012, Betty was also the spokes, uh, 
spokesperson and advocacy director for Colorado's campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol. She was the first in the country to make marijuana legal for adult use. She served as the deputy director of the National Cannabis Industry Association in 2013, where she was responsible for de developing NCIA's then nascent educational programming and framing the national conversation about the marijuana industry. And prior to her work in cannabis and drug policy, Betty spent a decade motivating and engaging volunteers at non as nonprofit leadership professionals here in Washington, D.C. And I'm um, sorry, in Denver, Colorado. And she's on Twitter as at Betty Aldworth. Thanks, Kat. <clears throat> Um, as an advocate rather than a representative of industry, I'm primarily interested in how technology can help solve prohibition problems, those things that we conceptualize as um, a marijuana issue, but really it's ultimately a problem of marijuana prohibition. Um, and as we move, like Taylor said, cannabis from the illicit to the licit markets, there are all of these prohibition hangovers, if you will, uh, that can be solved through uh, simply by virtue of pulling cannabis above ground and starting to apply some of the things that we've learned in many other industries, um, you know, including agricultural development, including uh, vitamin and, and nutraceutical manufacturing, and all sorts of other areas that, that will ultimately apply to cannabis as we develop these technologies and bring them to the cannabis world. So today I'm going to talk about three specific issues that are prohibition problems, not marijuana problems, and how technology might help to solve those issues. In the production realm, we have environmental concerns and energy consumption issues. In the processing world, we have potentially dangerous methodologies that are um, creating some, some scares, but are also possibly creating some health concerns. And in the consu consumption realm, the truth is that smoked cannabis is not necessarily the best answer for a lot of patients in particular, and there are many other ways that we can start to meet those needs, um, and there are some interesting trends happening in terms of the development of other types of products that are coming down the line. So let's start with production. Um, many of you have probably heard of the crisis in our national parks related to cannabis production. Um, cartels have set up shop uh, cultivating, or you know, perhaps not even cartels, major producers um, that are not cartel affiliated perhaps, have set up shop in our national parks and are causing tremendous environmental damage. They're rerouting water supplies, they are trashing local areas, they are you know, building out, building out these very large cultivations uh, uh, areas with a thousand or more plants in some cases that are destroying the local environment and in fact causing concerns about um, extinction for one particular uh, species of rodent in California. You know, we're hearing about all sorts of issues related to the drought. Uh, but again, these are prohibition problems. Because of course, in a regulated market, we don't see cannabis being cultivated in national parks, it's cultivated in licensed facilities, whether that's indoor or outdoor. So by taking cannabis out of the, the illicit market and moving it into the licit market, we're able to end that issue in its entirety and start to apply some of the interesting um, technologies that have been developing in both indoor and outdoor cultivation for many other industries. A lot of the vegetables that we eat today are cultivated indoors in highly efficient facilities, hydroponic facilities that are producing very high quality produce um, at a fairly energy efficient, in, in fairly energy efficient ways or in greenhouses supplemented by technological advances. The Lawrence Livermore Institute has, um, sorry, give me just one second. Let me make sure I've got this properly. Uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs estimates that 1% of energy consumption nationwide is consumed by illicit cannabis cultivation. 1%. And that's because it's happening in basements, right? It's not happening in greenhouses. It's not happening in hyper-efficient facilities where um, you know, folks are very interested in maximizing environment or the, the, you know their their energy use um, in order to minimize their bills. In California, it's estimated that that 
that energy consumption is about 3% of statewide consumption. California, of course, being the, the largest market to produce uh, illicit cannabis in the nation. Now, if we are applying new tech to, to an, a more environmentally focused cannabis production regimen, we can see reductions of between 30 and 50% of energy consumption in indoor facilities with new emerging LED lighting. If we are cultivating outdoors or in greenhouses, which is probably the most ideal from an environmental perspective, um, on, you know, outdoors on farms, not in, in parks, of course, um, then we see an even greater reduction in the energy consumption related to cannabis. But none of these things can happen until it's legal uh, and until it, it's no longer forced underground or, or into illicit cultivation facilities. Uh, on the processing side, um, we see a handful of different things. You know, people who are trying to figure out how to uh, minimize the amount of cannabis that they are in possession of, which is something that very frequently happens in a prohibition market in order to avoid heavy um, penalties. Uh, you know, we think about crack cocaine, for example, is, is one of the ways that, that that happens in an illicit market. Well, production of hash oil is very similar. You know, you take this much cannabis and turn it into this much hash oil, and you aren't going to be punished as heavily uh, if, it's, if the uh, punishments are based on weight. Um, the home production of, of hash has created a handful of problems um, that, that can be easily solved through these emerging technologies. One of them is that people are extracting uh, the, the components of cannabis uh, using potentially dangerous solvents. Now, for those people who are, are well aware of the cannabis world, um, I might catch some flack online for referring to butane or other solvents as potentially dangerous. Of course, um, hexane and butane and other solvents like that are used all the time in uh, food production and, and vitamin production and whatnot. But there's a very significant difference between a lab-controlled production of hash oil or anything else and somebody at home with uh, PVC and a can of butane. Those are two totally different things. And if you've been paying any attention at all to the news around cannabis and the bad news around cannabis, it's that people blow themselves up. This is a fact, right? Uh, not often, and it's not a marijuana problem. Again, it's a prohibition problem. But this is happening. People are using dangerous, potentially dangerous solvents in order to create these products that are extremely popular, and uh, it is dangerous to do in the home. Not so much in a lab. In a lab, it's fine. However, in the lab, what we're finding now in the, um, in the regulated market is that there are probably more ideal ways to do this, these extractions. There are other ways to go about pulling the ideal components out of cannabis um, whether that be THC or any of the dozens of other cannabinoids, whether that be the various terpenes that impact the way that cannabis crosses your blood-brain barrier, um, whatever it might be, and pulling those desirable components out of the cannabis and creating these new and innovative products in a safer way, both in terms of the production itself and the human beings, the impact on the human beings that are taking it in. So some really interesting stuff happening there with uh, CO2 extraction um, and other types of methodologies like that. And then the third piece that I'd like to talk about is, um, oh, and sorry, there's actually one more really interesting piece here um, in terms of the processing. It's not just that we are finding better ways to pull those products out of the cannabis, those, those components out of the cannabis. We're also finding better ways to put them together again um, in unique formulations that will eventually, I believe, be designed specifically for individuals and their symptoms. I will be able to walk into someday, any of us will be able to walk into someday, um, a pharmacy of sorts where we can say, here's what I'm experiencing, um, here's the problems that I'm having, how do we fix this? And someone will say, okay, we give you this, 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 and this. And then we refine over time very specifically 
the cannabis formulation that's going to work for individuals. Now, it might not be that specific, but I genuinely believe that at some point we might actually get there. And that's going to be a tremendously powerful moment for cannabis as medicine or as a health and wellness product. Um, we are also finding that um, products to eliminate psychotropic effects are starting to come on the market. So we're seeing pills and drinks and patches and all sorts of things where if you find yourself, um, pardon the, the uh, uh, phrase, too high, um, then you can stop that immediately. You know, Maureen Dowd really could have used that <laughs> when she was in Colorado eating that chocolate bar, right? Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that you can consume THC to a point where it makes you uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable, and odds are really good that nothing bad is going to happen to you except being really uncomfortable for a while. Um, but there are these products coming out on the market now where you can drink it or take a pill and it will actually change the way that your liver is processing the THC and immediately, within 20 minutes, stop the, the psychotropic effect. So you're getting rid of that anxiety, you're getting rid of that negative experience, you're able to normalize again and find a comfortable space. Um, the very last thing that I'll talk about is consumption tools. Um, in terms of the ways that people are consuming cannabis, you know, in 50 years, um, most cannabis consumers might roll joints on Halloween when they're dressed up like hippies from the 60s. They are not going to be smoking cannabis in 50, we, no one essentially is going to be smoking cannabis in 50 years. Um, it is an imperfect ingestion method in, by many degrees. Now there are social and, and uh, traditional reasons and ritual reasons to, to consume cannabis that way and there are many people today who prefer it, but in the future, that's not going to be the case. We already see incredible uh, movement in terms of development of new vaporizers in particular. And there are even companies, there's a company in Colorado right now uh, working with a, a small business incubator out there that is uh, that will bring a wide variety of vaporizers to your home for a Tupperware party. And you can check out all of these vaporizers and decide which one is the best for you and then order it through this company. Who to thunk, right? Um, but we, that's where we are today uh, in terms of those consumption technologies. And it's not just inhaling, it's patches, it's uh, pills, it's uh, tinctures where, that you drop under your tongue, and all sorts of different ways that we are finding to really refine the cannabis consumption experience, both for the adult user, the adult social user, and for the medical user as well. Uh, fascinating, fascinating world of development coming up. I think I'm at time, um, but I, that I'm very interested to see, uh, to, to wrap up, I'm really interested to see what we come up with, where we are 10 years from now when it comes to especially those health and wellness products. Thanks a lot, Betty. Thanks. I'm also very interested to see where that goes. <laughs> um, up next, we have Amy Poinsett. Amy is the CEO and co-founder of MJ Freeway, and she's going to give us a little bit of an idea of how that software works and what's happening with uh, how people are using it. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for having me here. This is very exciting. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our story and our history. Um, MJ Freeway was founded in 2010, and this is our, um, our office building. We are uh, housed in Denver, Colorado, in this great historic clock tower. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about our team. So we have 26 employees now. We were started in 2010 with a small group of IT and software professionals, and we wanted to create uh, some software and technology solutions specifically for the cannabis industry. So I'm delighted to say now, with 26 people, that's 26 of the many thousands of jobs that the legal cannabis industry has created in the last few years. And to talk a little bit about what we do, we are a business software platform. We do two main things. The first thing we do is track every gram. We have modules for cultivation management, infused product manufacturing, and retail inventory point of sale. And we track every gram and every dollar from seed to sale to capture the entire cannabis life cycle, as well as provide accurate chain of custody tracking throughout the, the, the hands, the form, different forms that the product may take as it, as it changes during the course of its life cycle, dehydrating, 
losing moisture as it changes from one business to another. It moves from a cultivator, perhaps as then wholesale, to a retailer, something like that. We capture all of that data in the entire chain of custody. The other thing that we do is compliance. We believe, as my fellow panelists do, that regulation is the way forward to bring cannabis into further into the legal market and out of the gray and black market. The cannabis laws are different across the country. We have clients in 20 states, uh, DC, Canada, and Europe. So we have a lot of compliance laws to keep track of. We guarantee that our software will meet any tracking or traceability requirement for cannabis at any state or federal level. We do follow Canada's um, federal guidelines for cannabis. Um, as well as all the U.S. guidelines. And we really believe that the, you know, the reason we want to do that is that technology, software in particular, can really help cannabis operators to be compliant, to follow the very strict regulations in this, in this industry that are getting tougher all the time, to make sure that they're labeling their product as required, that they're uh, able to submit the, the reports that their regulatory authority requires, that they're able to have visibility into their business and know that the way they're operating it is in compliance with the laws and also is creating a successful and sustainable job for their community and for their employees. Um, successful and sustainable business, rather. So we want to provide them tools for that. That's what we do. We've built um, pretty significant technology around that. We built our software from the ground up specifically to provide seed-to-sale tracking. So what is seed-to-sale tracking, you might ask? It captures everything that's happening in an individual plant's life from creation through growth and harvest all the way through to the final sale of the finished product. The goal is to ensure the integrity of the supply chain from, from grower to patient. The purpose is not only to prevent product loss at any point in the supply chain, whether from diversion or theft or simple errors, but it also gives you the ability to look at any gram of finished product dispensed to any patient or customer and track that all the way back to the plant it came from and know everything that happened in between. Know every nutrient that was applied to that plant, any other substance. Know every person that touched the finished product along the way, how it was packaged, when it was packaged. This kind of tracking is not unique to cannabis, um, but there are some unique requirements about cannabis that have made it really important in this industry and really important for us to develop technology around it. We actually have patents pending on our um, tracking algorithms, on our seed-to-sale technology, and we're looking forward, fingers crossed, to being granted those patents this year. We really believe that there are a lot of great future enhancements that will come to cannabis tracking and cannabis technology. The biggest area that we see lots of growth in, in, our, in our specific um, focus is around data. There's a tremendous amount of data that um, we have been tracking that the, the legal marijuana industry has been gathering over the, the last few years of operations as, as licensed and legitimate businesses. And that data now has really reached a critical mass that can be used um, for a whole variety of things. There are um, tremendous value coming out, as my panelists acknowledged, around the, the tracking of symptoms, the tracking of effects of various strains, tying that in with the testing results of those strains, and then being able to to incorporate the analysis of the, the analytical results, the testing results with the anecdotal results, how someone's feeling, to give um, patients and adult consumers the ability to say, you know, this is the kind of profile that I want in the strain that, that I'm interested in. And new technology is coming along to allow them to test even at home, to say, yes, this is, this is the profile I'm looking for, and I'm able to test it at home and verify that my medicine is safe and that it's giving me the, the effects that I want. Those are tremendous advances that were, none of those were available, you you know, even just a few years ago. So there's a, a great deal of exciting um, to technology happening there, and, and the use of the data, I think, will be the, the biggest area that we see growth in in the future. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to some questions. Thank you, Amy. Um, with that, I'm actually going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask a few questions of our panel here. Um, and after that, I'll go ahead and ask questions from the audience. So if you have any burning things you need answered, now's the time to think through how you're going to ask that. Um, so one of the things that I think that this panel kind of evolved from, and one of the things that we've heard all of you guys talking about a little bit, is that cannabis law is very different in different parts of the country. Um, and it, it really comes down to federalism in a real way. How is that shaping the business side of things, especially in terms of uh, tech innovation and tech opportunity? 
Sure. Um, I will jump in with that to start. Um, it is a, a very interesting world right now because, as Kat said, nearly every state has a completely different approach uh, to how they are regulating their programs, how they're setting them up. Um, you have literally opposite approaches in some cases. Uh, Colorado, when they opened up for legal adult use, began with um, a requirement that businesses be vertically integrated, meaning that dispensaries were required to produce, I believe it was 70% of uh, what they were selling. So there, it was a, a required by law monopoly, or not monopoly, but uh, vertical uh, integration. The uh, state of Washington, when they opened up their legal adult use system, actually did the opposite and forbade there to be uh, someone who had a license for both cultivation and dispensing. Um, they wanted to keep those two things separate and not have any, you know, one company you know, taking over too much of the process. Um, each of them had uh, motivations for why they set their systems up the way they did. Uh, the Colorado vertical integration system actually sunsetted after a year. Um, so we're now moving into a world in Colorado where you have uh, separate cultivators and dispensaries if, if people choose to go that direction. Um, but the point is that there is not a lot of consistency from one state to another, and it poses some very unique challenges to any business that wants to operate in multiple states. Um, as Amy talked about, certainly from the technology standpoint, you're having to design your software or your equipment so that it meets guidelines of all of these different regulatory schemes. If you're actually a producer, uh, then you have the added logistical challenge of the fact that you cannot move your product from one state to another. If you're a tester, you have a testing lab, you have the, the challenge that your clients cannot send you product to be tested from another state. Um, even a sample for testing is not legal to move across state lines. Um, so one of the, the developments that we've seen is um, we have a member of NCIA who is a testing lab in the Northeast, and they have developed a mobile testing lab um, in an old ambulance that they can actually bring from state to state and test product on site at the producer's location uh, so that there's no concern about having to, to transport it. Um, the other way that this has really affected the development of the industry is that um, you're still working mostly with small businesses that are growing from the ground up. We are starting to see some producers um, build multi-state operations, but it's extremely difficult. It's very complicated. It often involves licensing agreements with other operators in other states. Um, so you're having to fork over a certain amount of your intellectual property. Uh, and so very few companies are doing it. Um, this is could be um, could lead to a slower development of the industry, but it also means that there are more opportunities for smaller business people to get in right now rather than the industry being dominated by a few major players. I think that's actually, personally, I think that's been a, a benefit overall, the, the, a net positive in the sense that it's allowed the industry to, um, to grow and adapt and evolve without being sort of dominated by, by one or two um, uh, big entities. Uh, so those are kind of the the things that I see in terms of how it helps shape the industry, but I'll let you guys weigh in as well. Well, I think another piece of this is from the state side. Um, Taylor mentioned a bit of this, but each state, is, of course, has their own method, uh, not only their own regulatory structure, but their own method for how they want to capture information mm -hmm. from the licensees. And there is absolutely no consistency in terms of what the state is willing to allow um, cannabis licensees to enter themselves, to submit to a state tracking system through software like ours, to, you know, in, in many, some cases, even like written reports and, and paper being submitted to the state. There's there's no real connection um, in terms of how the tech is being implemented there. And I think there's an awful lot of fear on the state side in many cases. They are under a lot of scrutiny. They are well aware that they're the system of record for federally illegal transactions. And they want to make sure that they that their inspectors have the, the ability to enforce the regulations. Some states approach that very much hand-in-hand um, -hand with industry, looking for ways to solve the problems. Other states uh, have a much more arm's-length attitude, and, and that creates a lot of challenges for the businesses as well, I think. 
All right. Then what are some of the most pressing legal hurdles uh, the industry is facing? Is there hope for change in terms of these kinds of things? Is it is it the um, conflicting regulations? Is it something else? What are we looking at? I <laughs> yes, definitely. I think the banking and 280E are by far the, the most existential threats to the industry. Um, so, and those are federal policies. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, when people think about federal marijuana policy, they often think immediately about things like legalization, which obviously is another you know, major issue for the industry. But the fact is that there are these federal policies that could be changed now simply that don't actually change the legal uh, status of the plant, uh, but simply allow states to operate with sovereignty to set their own laws um, and have the, the federal law respect those state decisions. Um, I think, you know, on a state level, you also have a growing debate about where the line is between uh, appropriate regulation that sets you know, certain levels of, of safety or um, packaging and information and education versus personal responsibility. Um, this is a big debate right now in Colorado. Um, how much should the producers be responsible for warnings and labels and packaging uh, versus the, the customer. Um, you know, we expect people to keep cleaning products, alcohol, vitamins, any number of things away from children um, and put in a safe place. Uh, you know, the, should we be asking customers of marijuana to do more than that? Um, should we be asking producers of marijuana to be responsible for more than we expect these other industries to be? Um, I think that's a debate that's going to increase as more states move into this kind of mainstream regulatory setup. I think that um, one of the interesting pieces of these new and emerging um, technological solutions uh, on the consumer side is that we are going to see um, consistently increasing levels of safety and the, this like tension between um, overregulation of cannabis products and the relative safety of cannabis itself is going to uh, you know lend itself toward resolution as we are able to normalize cannabis in the licit world as opposed to you know thinking of it as a drug that is any different than any other drug um, that is currently legal like my favorite one right here <laughs> um, you know so we have to we have to really think about how that fits into our our um, households, our communities, our regulatory markets, um, and technology when it comes to product and packaging design um, to how we go about informing consumers, how we go about informing young people through technological social media platforms and, and other methods is going to be a really another interesting area of development. Wonderful. Um, so what are, are there any areas in which the cannabis industry is really innovating in technology or are all the technological innovations we're seeing much more something that they're seeing in other industries and then adapting? I'll take a first stab at that. I think um, one of the areas that we're going to see a lot of um, new technological advancement in the next few years is around the agriculture of cannabis. <laughs> Betty mentioned this a little bit, but um, because cannabis is such a high value product, it's really driving some very exciting agricultural enhancements that aren't paid for if you're cultivating tomatoes or spinach or whatever else because the, the value um, of that crop is not comparable. So um, new things in terms of new lighting technology, LED lights that can sense the, the level of stress that the plant is under based on how much um, carbon dioxide it's processing and adapt the lights accordingly. I mean, really exciting stuff. And there's a lot of that going on, um, specifically around agriculture. And what I think will be very exciting for all of us is when we see that those advancements then move into mainstream agriculture and see that 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 business being driven by cannabis, but um, radiating out from there. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, another factor that comes into play is that in a lot of places where cultivation is legal, um, indoor cultivation is required. Um, I think that we hope to see that policy begin to change uh, because, frankly, indoor cultivation can be very um, resource intensive. uh, And we have sun and greenhouse growing abilities that would be much more efficient. But as long as these uh, uh, cultivation operations are confined to indoors, there are an an incredible number of advances that are happening simply to make these operations more efficient um, from a cost perspective for the cultivators. You know, it's obviously it's not great for the environment to be using so much power, but it's also expensive. Um, So there's a real incentive there for these business owners to find uh, more efficient ways to cool and climate control their buildings, Uh, the lighting um, being more sophisticated and also more energy efficient. Uh, So things like that, I think we're also seeing both new technologies and new adaptations of older technology specifically designed for this plant. For me, I think that the most interesting thing that's going to end up happening in uh, marijuana technology, again, is the the application um, of very specific health and wellness, um, health health and wellness applications of cannabis. Um, And again, that's not now. That's in some number of years down the road. Um, Well, even now they have like personal testers and things like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, you can, coming on the market very soon. Um, (laughs) And uh, full disclosure, I'm in the advisory board for this company because I think it's just such a brilliant idea. Um, There's a, a product tester that you will be able to plug into your phone and determine the uh, safety and potency of cannabis um, based on just putting a little bit into this tester. You know, and that's something that uh, that is really that's driving other uh, notions around uh, product safety, because not this particular product was developed for cannabis testing because it's so hard to access that testing as a consumer in either the legal or the illicit market. Um, but they also are in development. They have in development um, little testers for your water and your food and your air. Uh, so that's something that um, isn't happening outside of the cannabis realm, but rather is being driven by the cannabis realm. Thanks for the reminder on that. Yeah. Well, I thought that one was interesting. (laughs) Um, So maybe this is a bit connected, but what is your favorite new cannabis tech you're seeing out there? Why? Maybe while you guys are thinking on that, I'm going to ask the audience if they have any questions and keep that in mind. I'll make you answer it again at the end. Absolutely. All right. my question uh, involves uh, spec- uh, specifications and standardization. Uh, I'll give you an example. For example, if the military has to do with Army, Air Force, Marines, and they all have different weapon systems, and they need a, and they need a common language to be, a, be able to exchange data. Uh, is there any effort that's going on to standardize, for example, tag sets, XML tag sets, so that, uh, if, for example, you're talking to a particular state or provider that everybody's on the same sheet. If I, if I develop a piece of software, that I, I can develop that software using the same tag sets or standardized tag sets that you use or be able to accept information into your system. There's been some discussion about that, um, both with some of the industry providers, such as myself, and I know some of that has happened at NCIA as well. However, it's really the states that have to drive that conversation. And, and thus far, you know, so we as providers can't go to the state and say, hey, we're doing this for everybody else. It'd be great if you use this, this uh, standard as well. It really needs to come from the state side. So as far as I'm aware, those conversations at the state level have not been happening, but fingers crossed they will be. Question in the back there. It's a big room to move that mic around. CNN has had uh, some uh, programs on the cannabis industry, and it was uh, uh, showing how tremendous uh, cash was being generated from this industry. How does the federal government keep tabs on all this cash? <laughs> and, and Taylor, I don't know if I understood you correctly, but you say that that the, that the profits from this industry is being taxed at 80%? And, yep. and also, if this is a, a legal industry, 
why can't this industry open bank accounts? So yeah, there, there is a um, huge amount of cash being created, definitely. Um, the banking question comes into play because of the, the fact that this is still a product that's federally illegal. Um, so the directors of any particular financial institution look, have to look at their, their risk profile and they feel that they may run the risk of being uh, at odds with federal law around contributing to some sort of, of um, felony or, or uh, other crime in, by facilitating uh, the business of a cannabis business. Um, you know, these were not laws that were written with any eye toward the idea that there would be a state legal cannabis industry, um, the laws are simply outdated and don't take this into account. Um, so that is why we are seeing banks um, not serving the industry. And the fact is that the banks can pretty much close your account for any reason without really giving you much uh, they, they, they don't have to give you a reason. They don't have to have a particularly good reason. Uh, and they don't really have to give you much notice. They can pretty much shut your account down anytime. Um, they have to give you your assets back, but um, they can refuse your business. Uh, that's something that we're trying to fix at the federal level uh, with laws that explicitly state that banks are not uh, at legal risk if they are serving a business that is uh, in compliance with state law. Um, on the tax side, what's happening is, um, to sort of run you through quickly, the numbers, if you imagine a business that brings in a million dollars of revenue and you subtract out 600000 for expenses, uh, salaries, equipment, um, rent, those kinds of things, uh, and then there's another, there's a category of cost of goods sold, which actually they actually can deduct, so that gets a little complicated, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. Normally, a business would pay taxes on the amount, uh, their revenue minus their expenses. So essentially, their profit. Um, in And that, say, they're paying 30% on that. Uh, a cannabis business, if they're filing their federal taxes, does not get to deduct those expenses out from the amount that they pay taxes on. So they essentially are paying taxes, with a few exceptions, on their gross revenue, um, which means that if you take 30% of your gross revenue, your effective tax rate uh, could very easily come out to 75, 80%. We have businesses that have actually owed more in taxes than they made on the year once you, um, you know, subtract out their, um, their expenses. So it's a major problem. And not only is it, it you know, it's, it's affecting these businesses that are trying to do the right thing, right? They're filing their federal taxes, despite the fact that the federal government treats them like criminals. Um, the ones who are trying the hardest to do it the right way are the ones who are getting penalized the most. But it also adds an incredible layer of uncertainty within the industry because it's still a very unclear area exactly which things can be deducted and which things cannot. Uh, and so a lot of cannabis businesses are facing the possibility that at some point down the road, the IRS could uh, instigate an audit and come back and claim you know, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars more that they owe in back taxes. Um, so it's also an issue in terms of investment, because if you are an investor um, looking into uh, helping to, to grow a cannabis business, you have to take that possibility into account um, when you're thinking about the risk that you're taking on. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that that plays out um, that, that are severe hurdles for people who are trying to start and grow businesses in the industry. currently profitable. So how do they transport their money to the federal government, the IRS, if it's illegal, right? I mean, that seems like it's impossible to do. And if you go cross border to a state that is not, um, you know, it's, uh, you're not, it's against the law to, um, to even move money from, you know, the state where you make the money 
who is enforcing or watching or because you could just go not necessarily to a bank right because you would have to say where the money came from over a certain amount but you have the consumer industry you're going in to buy whatever you want to buy including cars for cash for example and where does the what do you see coming out of the big pharma industry because potentially this is a threat on the health part of it because less people will get sick, right, mm -hmm. for example, and what sorts of feedbacks or benchmarks or experience you hear countries such as Jamaica mm -hmm. and other places in the world, what are they doing? Are you tap, have you tapped into that to mm -hmm. see what sort of experience they're going through? Because everything that the U.S. does, countries like Jamaica has to follow. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll say um, on the cash issue, it's another, it's definitely another logistical challenge. Um, there are businesses that are moving cash on a daily basis, um, some using armored trucks, some literally sending out decoy cars um, with one person carrying the shopping bag full of cash and others carrying fake shopping bags to try to you know, make sure that they're not getting uh, followed by a criminal. Um, interestingly, you know, the IRS seems to be perfectly happy to take the money. <laughs> um, it's also worth noting that the banks seem perfectly happy to see, serve, say, the state of Colorado, which is also bringing in a lot of revenue from the marijuana industry. Uh, they don't seem to have a problem processing that. Um, the, there is a, an interesting situation in which the IRS will actually penalize a business for not paying their taxes electronically. Um, despite the fact that these businesses are basically prevented from using the electronic uh, payment. And uh, a business just recently sort of pushed back on that and reached a settlement with the IRS where they weren't uh, actually assessed the 10% penalty. So there are conversations happening uh, about the fact that this industry is, there are very real issues that need to be addressed uh, in the industry. Um, movement of cash, it really is uh, each business tries to figure out the best way that they can, but there's no set system and all of them have major drawbacks. Um, as far as the, the pharma stuff, and then I, I feel like I'm talking tons, so I'll let you guys uh, weigh in too. As far as the pharmaceutical things go, it is a really interesting question and it's one that a lot of people are curious about. Um, we are also curious about it, honestly, to, to see how it develops. At this point where the industry stands, because of the fractured nature of the regulatory schemes, um, it, there has not been a large move by large pharmaceutical companies to get involved. And that's likely to stay that way until the federal government makes some uh, move toward a, a broader policy on marijuana. Um, a lot of these pharmaceutical companies get a lot of money from government grants or they're somehow tied to research that gets grants um, and they don't want to jeopardize that. Um, how it changes once there is you know, some movement on the federal level is a great question. Uh, and I think what we're focused on right now is trying to build a strong industry built off of the small businesses that are growing up from the bottom so that this industry will be established and grounded in the principles that, that we believe in um, and won't be completely subsumed at the point that a pharmaceutical company may decide to get in. Um, but you guys probably have thoughts on this too. I will say uh, on, on your final question about what's happening in other countries and, and what we're seeing, um, there's an incredibly vibrant dialogue happening at the global level now, especially around marijuana as medicine, but also you know, a variety of different countries sort of pushing the, uh, the envelope on policy related to not just cannabis, um, but drug prohibition in general and the drug war broadly. Um, when it comes to cannabis in particular, um, there are a lot of questions about, you know, uh, cannabis for adult use, not for medical use. Um, uh, there are a lot of questions around uh, treaty obligations at the United Nations and many other complexities. But there is a vibrant dialogue happening uh, globally in Jamaica, in Uruguay, in Chile, in countries all over the world. Um, where uh, folks are trying to figure out how 
to manage marijuana more responsibly for either medical or social use. Um, and that is certainly going to be something to watch uh, over the next handful of years, especially as we're coming up on 2016, when we'll be seeing the United Nations General Assembly special session on the world drug problem. Uh, I'll take one more question from the audience, and then uh, I'm going to put you guys back on the spot with my earlier question. Right, um, right up here in front. Betty, you mentioned earlier the concept of a prohibition hangover. Um, in the alcohol industry, for example, we see a lot of remnants from prohibition, whether it's the three-tier distribution system mm -hmm. or minimum or minimum pricing, maximum alcohol by volume and different products. Mm -hmm. These things, as they are in place currently, uh, provide a lot of jobs, <laughs> which makes it very difficult to get rid of them. Do you view it as essential to getting rid of as many of these barriers as possible early on? And is there a focus being made on that, or are there other things that are being given a higher priority than those? You know, that's a um, that's one of my favorite uh, public policy questions when it comes to the statewide or the state by state implementation. Um, and it's something that we grappled with in Colorado, where I was on one of the working groups, where we actually addressed this question. Do we create a, th a three-tier distribution model? Um, do we create the vertically integrated system that Taylor mentioned? And, and what we came to was a gradual system when we, where we moved out of that vertically integrated uh, system. And there's this there's tension between um, allowing a more free market style development and recognizing that there we are dealing with a world in which not everyone knows that um, marijuana is objectively safer than alcohol and it can be uh, healthfully regulated and we can incorporate it into our world outside of the illicit market because you know millions of people are using it anyway and so there there is so much that has to happen socially um, and politically and from the regulatory perspective around, I'm probably going to make myself really unpopular in this room, but you know, there's so much that has to happen in terms of shifting perspective among um, you know, the, the general population to ensure that we're not just making change, we're making sustainable change, that I'm really personally okay with a slower approach. Now, that being said, it is patently absurd that we were having a conversation about this three-tier model in Colorado that came after alcohol prohibition and suggesting that we needed to, you know, that was put in place specifically to, um, to, to deal with the, the cartels, but we are, have all of the, or with, with the, the gangs, you know, and, and the bootleggers, but we, there are so many other ways that we're making sure that cartels are not involved in the, in the legal marijuana market that it's totally unnecessary, right? Um, and so we're basing public policy 75 years later on what was flawed public policy then. Yes, that's an issue. Um, there's no doubt. But, I, you know, for me, it's far more important that we are righting the wrongs of the drug war and the extraordinary harms that it has caused on communities, not just here, but around the world. Um, and I'm willing to live with that, with things like that. Great, thank you. And on uh, that note, I'm gonna put you guys back on the spot. Uh, <laughs> what is your favorite new, emergent, old cannabis technology and why? So it was already mentioned here, but um, and in Colorado, it's kind of old hat, but I, every now and then I remember to drag myself outside of the Colorado bubble and realize that not everyone is used to the idea that you can just walk into a store and buy, not only buy marijuana, but buy a just plethora of new technologies around marijuana. It really is kind of fascinating. Um, the, I think what you're seeing a lot of uh, in states like that is the use of vaporizers. As Betty mentioned earlier, um, as people have moved away from the concept of smoking um, anything because there's an understanding that, that taking that carbon into your lungs is not a, not a good thing. Um, what vaporizers do uh, essentially is they heat the plant um, without burning it. 
and it releases the, the same compounds that you get um, from burning it, but with less uh, damaging uh, additional issues. Uh, you're, not, you're not burning, you're not inhaling actual smoke, you're inhaling vapor. It has significantly less odor. Um, and the other thing that's really neat about the, the vaporizers that you're seeing on the market now is they've made them very small. Um, now, if you're going way back and really, well, not that far back, but the, vaporizers used to be a tabletop situation. <laughs> and so it was something you might use in your home, but it wasn't exactly uh, portable. Now you can get them the size of a pin. Um, and they are extremely discreet. They, like I said, don't carry the same issues of smoke and odor, but they also really allow you to, um, to uh, titrate the amount that you're taking in to really um, judge how much of a hit you want to take. Um, and in a world where we are talking about a, a normalized consumption of cannabis, where you may decide that instead of having your one glass of wine when you get home from work, or two glasses of wine, then, <laughs> uh, you might have a sip or two off of your vaporizer. And it provides a very similar and yet healthier alternative. Um, being able to really regulate the amount that you're taking in so that you don't you know, end up couch locked for the next six hours, um, but instead just kind of unclench your brain after you know, a really stressful day uh, is a fantastic thing. And frankly, as a way to relax, to get to sleep, to um, you know, just sort of unwind, it has fewer side effects than alcohol does. Um, and so anyway, I'm going off into the, the whole thing, but my point is that I think vaporizers are a fantastically accessible way for people to choose to consume a very moderate amount of cannabis. So I have uh, been a fan of those as they've evolved on the market. Um, I've already talked a lot today about um, product uh, development, um, in particular when it comes to non-psychotropic products. I'm very excited about the health and wellness field. And you know what we're going to see in terms of uh, disease prevention and symptom control and management um, once we have have really um, you know walked a few years down this path of product development. That stuff is amazing. So I'm going to say uh, my second favorite or my other favorite um, uh, technological development piece here, and I'm I'm stunned that we haven't talked about it yet, or I haven't talked about it yet, is hemp. Um, <laughs> You know, this it fits into the same realm. Hemp cultivation in the U.S. has been, um, you know, completely uh, inaccessible um, for many, many years because of ridiculous laws. Um, and so we've been relying on hemp cultivation for, uh, mostly in Canada and China. But there are thou a thousand uses um, for hemp. And what we will end up seeing in terms of development there, which will rely a great deal um, on technological development in terms of processing and whatnot, um, that's going to be a total game changer in terms of um, our agro-industrial um, marketplace here in the U.S. I think the area that I would touch on that we haven't spoken about already is actually marketing. Um, there's a, There are a tremendous amount of restrictions on the marketing that cannabis businesses are able to do and the, the advertising um, avenues that are open to them or closed to them in many cases. They're not able to do paid advertising on Google or other search engines. They're not, you know, many times, even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts get shut down. Um, so lots of dispensaries are really starting to embrace mobile technology and starting to have, starting to do some permission-based text um, marketing, really exploring ways that they can have a conversation with the people who want to, um, to be their patients or adult use customers and find ways to communicate with those people that adds value, that uh, retains a sense of privacy, um, and that is, is not subject to um, some of the whims of third-party platforms that, that uh, these businesses are running into now. Thank you. Um, on that note, thank you to our lovely panelists here today and to all of you in the audience. Uh, especially those of you watching on the live stream. Um, I hope you'll all join us for future Cato Digitals. If you're not on our mailing list, you can sign in at the front door. 
And for those of you actually here in our physical audience today, I invite you to join the rest of us to continue the discussion downstairs in Cato's Winter Garden. Thanks. Thank you.